I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6. We are studying through the Jesus passages, and we've come to today to the beheading of John the Baptist. And we've entitled this, When Someone Hurts You. Now, hopefully no one is chasing you <laughs> with an axe or a sword trying to behead you as they did the, the Apostle John. But yet, I mean, as they did John the Baptist. But yet there are people in our lives who probably try to do damage to us. Uh, sometimes it's just, a, it's just a, a little momentary hurt. Sometimes it's a lifetime hurt. I remember when, when Susie and I, first year of marriage, we were dorm parents at Salvation Bible College. And the freshman boys' dorm, we were sort of their parents. And, and one morning we were going out to work, and they thought, jokingly, that I was coming out first. Instead, Susie came out first, and from the roof they poured a bucket of water on Susie as she's getting ready to go to, go to work, you know. Well, of course, your first reaction is not real positive, right? But then you realize it's, it's a sense of humor and fun that we're all having, and you get over it. And people do things to us. And sometimes it's humorous, sometimes it's hurtful, but we do get over it. On the other hand, there are sometimes people do things to us that really may be lifetime hurts. I've been t- going to visit my mother who's in, a, in assisted care, and her day is not very active, and she doesn't, can't remember a lot of the contemporary stuff, but she remembers a lot of the old stuff. So I talked to her about her life in the past and what she's been doing and how they made life decisions. And, and she said something to me yesterday that I had never heard before. She said that one ministry that my dad had was that uh, he was so popular in that ministry that his predecessor asked him not to hang around the property and visit the property of that ministry very often. I'd never heard that before. And I thought, how that must hurt someone to have one, someone say to you, you've been successful, but don't show up over here. You follow me? And you look at that and you realize those are lifelong things that come into our lives and hurt. All of us have family members. All of us come from job experiences. All of us have maybe stuff with relationships where a person we've trusted, someone has, has responded to us in a way that's damaged our lives. And, and probably today... You might even think about it once in a while when Chip introduced the service and said, we're going to talk about when someone hurts you. And maybe that incident or that person came to your mind. You know, you ask yourself how to respond. Well, in our passage this morning in Mark chapter 6, in verse 14, when Herod Antipas, who is the tetrarch, he's referred to as the king here, but he probably really wasn't the king. He was more of a tetrarch. He heard about the ministry of Jesus. And his first response out of hearing about John the Baptist was that this must be John the Baptist raised again from the dead. Jesus comes along teaching and preaching and doing his his miracles. And he says, who is this man? And after knowing about John and having beheaded John, he said the most logical explanation is that he must be John, Christ must be John raised again from the dead. And I thought, what a compliment that must have been to John the Baptist to be have Jesus confused for you. <laughs> you follow me? And as I looked at that, I thought to myself, wouldn't that be a wonderful compliment for all of us to have a lifestyle, to respond to the junk that comes into our lives in such a way that people confuse us for Jesus in the righteous, glorious way we respond to that stuff. And so today, I want us to ask ourselves, as we look at John's life and how John responded in in life and in death, to ask ourselves, just as Herod Antipas confused Jesus for John the Baptist, how could we allow people to confuse us in our response 
for the God of heaven, for Jesus Christ himself. Well, how could we do that? Well, as I look at this passage, and I look at John the Baptist, I see that there are several ways that John responded well. I think one is in his example, he teaches us to model righteousness. If you look at verse 14, it says, King Herod, and this is Herod Antipas, heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. And he says, some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he must be Elijah. Others said he must be like one of the prophets of long ago. But look at verse 16. But when Herod, the king, heard this, he said, John, that man I beheaded has been raised again from the dead. (laughs) In other words, that man I beheaded, John the Baptist, this Jesus must be him because they are so similar to each other in what they were doing. That he figured he, Jesus, had to be John raised up again. Now, it's interesting, the passage says that Jesus came and did miraculous powers. But John didn't do miracles. I mean, John had a message. What was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he would baptize people as as an outward display of their repentance, and they're siding with this message of repentance. And that's what the baptism of John was. But but how did King Herod get, get Jesus confused with John? I think maybe in two ways. One is their message. The message was powerful. Repent. Can you imagine a guy coming out here, (laughs) you know, wearing those funny clothes and calling us to repent of our sin? You know, he was being very righteous. He was so righteous and intriguing in what he had to say that verse 20 in the passage tells us that Herod liked to listen to him. His wife Herodias wanted to kill John the Baptist, but Herod liked to bring him in and have conversations and to listen to what he had to say. Maybe he was convicted a little bit by his message that, you know, he had married the wrong person. Or possibly he was just intrigued by this message of righteousness. But John's message and the message of Christ were one and the same. Repent. God's righteousness. Make this the standard of your life. Turn from the way you've been living and honor God's righteousness in the way that he has called you to live. That is the message of John, and that was the message of Jesus. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious establishment, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here, both Jesus and John and their message came into a community and said, look, (laughs) your standards are all wrong. You're imitating the wrong kind of people. You've got to be living a righteous life before God. So their message. But secondly, not only that, but their manner, the manner of life. How was John? What was his manner of life? He lived in the desert, you know, crazy clothes, crazy diet, right? Jesus came along. He wasn't quite so extreme, but he was very, his ministry and his heart was for the what? The poor people. And Jesus lived as a pauper so that he might minister to the poor, the outcasts, those that had had broken relationships, those who had sins. In fact, when they mocked Jesus, they would say, he he can't be from God in Luke chapter 15 because he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. All the people that we despise are the people that Jesus wants to hang around. My friends, maybe that's why Herod was intrigued by John the Baptist because John the Baptist, like Jesus, held a standard of righteousness that grabbed his attention and made a difference in that world. My friends, when people hurt us, I think the only response we have 
is to be righteous. Because if we take the opposite approach, our model will not be God. Our model will be the people that are hurting us. I read an interesting uh, report this week in, in Christianity Today, a magazine that I take. They're talking, the issue is dedicated to depression. And it gave the statistic that research has been done in the Amish community. Are you familiar with the Amish people? The Amish community, where their rates of reactive depression is significantly lower than that of evangelical Christians. And the writer said, John Ortberg said, that probably the reason is, is that, uh, <laughs> is that we are trying to be in the world, but not of the world, right? In the world, but not of the world. So therefore, the world touches us more than the world touches the Amish community. So the Amish community has lower expectations when it comes to jobs or cars or finances or respectability. And so they don't get depressed about those things as quickly as we would because we've adopted the standards of the world. In fact, evangelical standards, uh, statistics on, on reactive depression equal that of those who are not believers. So there's no difference between the stand between those who claim the name of Christ and those who don't name the name of Christ. Why? It's because we become so much a part of the world that our standard is not the righteousness of God. Our standard is the world and the way it influences us in our world. What would it be like if we made stand righteousness the way we responded to the stuff that happens to us? This past week, our men's Bible study, Joe and I are in a group that meets on Friday morning, and uh, we did Acts. Joe had to study Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, it ends where Stephen has these people unfairly abuse him. They meet in secret to, to slander him. They gather witnesses that are false to say things that are untrue about him. And the text ends by saying, and Stephen's face looked like an angel. <laughs> His face looked like an angel. What a response. What a response. You see, Stephen's response to those people that were hurting him was not human standards, but it was divine standard. And my friends, if I adopt the standards of unrighteousness, I will respond like the world does, but if I, that it's all about me. But if I adopt the standards of God's righteousness, how can I show righteousness back to this person? Because if you think about an angry, hostile, hurtful person to you, if you don't respond righteously, then you're responding with that same anger and hostility that, that they've responded to you. It's interesting that 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 50, 53 that he would suffer, that he'd be despised, and that like a lamb led to the slaughter, you know, he would not open his mouth. He would not open his mouth. So 700 years at least before Jesus responded in righteousness and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the God of heaven prepared for that righteous response. You follow me? And so they were, for 700 years at least, the God of heaven was waiting for the opportunity to respond righteously to those who were hurting Jesus Christ. My friends, the best way that people can confuse us with Christ himself, is to respond to what people do to us as God would righteously based on the teaching of Scripture. 
I think the second thing I see in this is that John the Baptist was also very clear in being able to deal with the main issue and to focus on what is the main issue. Because when people attack you or or get it gets into a hurtful mode, I've had people say, you know, they they want to have a criticism and of me as a person, I say, well, let's get together and talk about it, you know. And I find that from the moment that one criticism that we initially going to talk about till the time we get together, they have a list on a piece of paper of 20 issues, <laughs> you know, that, that relate to me. And I realize I never want in any one of those conversations because the real issue here is the fact is, is not the issue that they're talking about. John the Baptist is very clear in dealing and hammering the issue. What is the issue? Well, the issue for us is verse 17, where it says that John was imprisoned, he did this because Herodias, his brother's wife, brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. One of the transgressions of the Jewish law in marriage was for, you know, a brother to marry the, the wife of his brother. And so in this case, Herod Antipas had taken Herodias both of them were married, and both of them divorced their counterparts uh, to marry each other. And against Jewish law, they did this and celebrated it. And so here, John the Baptist, if you've ever seen a life of Jesus, like the Jesus movie or one of these films on TV, John the Baptist has seen it. Every time they come by in their royal chariots, you know, point his, his finger and condemning them for transgressing the law of Moses and for Herod Antipas to take Herodias as his wife. And that stirred up anger inside Herodias, anger so much that eventually the only thing she wanted when, when her daughter was offered half the kingdom, what did she choose? The head of John the Baptist. Now the irony of this is if that was the main issue, they could have said, John, we don't like the way you dress. John, we think your emphasis on repentance is a little bit overkill. You follow me? Could you sort of keep it up? John, you're baptizing people, but, you know, it seems like you're using maybe, you know, isn't that a little bit out of date to do, you know. They could have used all these side issues to talk about John. But John said there was only one issue here. What is the issue? The issue is, is that you should, you are living in a wrong relationship with this woman, and you should not be with her. The irony of this whole story is we would not have this story with us today if, if he had just obeyed the scriptures and done what was right. We would not have this story today. You know, I think the main issue, it shows how maybe why the king was curious and the wife was furious. Hmm? Because uh, here, John is pointing to the core issue that is there. And my friends, when someone strikes out against you, you don't have to be quite as obnoxious as John the Baptist was and pointing your finger at them and saying, here's your problem, here's your problem. But I do think you have to be wise enough to either personally understand what the issue is and then as God gives you the grace, be able to communicate that with the other person. You follow me? This is not the issue. This is not the issue. They tell us that if you ask the why question seven times, it'll get you to the core issue of a matter. If someone says, uh, I don't like uh, the way you park your car. Well, what do you mean you don't like the way I park my car? Well, it's, it's difficult you know, it's difficult uh, for other people in the neighborhood. Well, how's it difficult for other people in the neighborhood? Well, people have to drive around it, and uh, it's hurtful. Well, I've heard no one complain. Well, my wife has difficulty when she backs her car. Okay, see, we're getting closer, right? <laughs> you follow me? And if you ask the why question seven times, they say, normally you'll get back to the issue. And unless you understand in a conflict the core issue, 
you will never understand the problem. This past week, I took my car in to get fixed because the engine light kept coming on. They looked at it once, and they fixed it. You follow me? We thought, and it didn't kept happening, so I took it in again. Finally, they figured it out, and they said, Mr. Gannett, the problem is, is you've got to put your gas can on tightly on a Chevy Tahoe. If you don't do it, then this light is going to come on. I thought the problem was up in the engine. That wasn't where the problem was. The problem was back with dummy me not putting the gas uh, cap on uh, correctly or tightly, tight enough, you see. And sometimes, unless we know the main issue, unless we know the main issue, we're having some confession of sin back here. <laughs> unless we know the main issue, uh, we will do the same thing. And whenever you're dealing with a person that is being a Herod Antipas in your life or Herodias, ask yourself, what is the main issue? And try to focus on that main issue. I remember talking to a man one time. And he was, I was young in the ministry and he was complaining about the church. And he was complaining about people in the church. And we would have a meal and meet for breakfast and he would start attacking this. And then he would attack the board. And then finally got to attacking me. And I thought the more he attacked me, the more I wanted to meet with him to solve this problem and get it right, right? And in the process, then one time in our discussions, he talked about this issue, the problem that he had with lust. And he was lusting after another woman. And I thought to myself... <laughs> The church is not his issue. The board is not his issue. I am not his issue. His issue is lust. And the rest of the stuff just spills over. We have a dear friend, and her mother always made her feel like an idiot, always made her feel inferior, like she could never really accomplish anything. And when we became friends with them, we kept trying to prop her up and tell her, you know, you're, you're one of the finest people we've ever met. I mean, she really was. And yet her mother had been so angry and so hostile, and so divisive in the family, and so bitter and controlling and manipulative that it made this girl feel inferior. And we tried to coach her on how to deal with that. She told us recently that when her father died, she went to the funeral, she said, I was surprised, I never shed a tear. And she said, the reason I didn't shed a tear was I probably was angry. They never interfered, interfered in our family to deal with my mother and deal with the issues that she was causing upon our family. My friends, God has given to you the, the teaching of God's Word. He's given to you the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to grant you wisdom, to look at a situation where people are hurting you, to try to understand by God's grace what is the real issue. To deal with the side stuff, it'll only cause more grief. But like John the Baptist tried to identify, what is the real issue in doing that? How did Christ identify the real issue? He identified the real issue by going to the cross and giving his life for the salvation of our souls. He realized that the only solution was a sacrifice to forgive us of our sin. And he did that for us. And then lastly, I think thirdly, as I look at this text, I think we just have to trust God with unfair people. Because, you know, we can never understand everything that happens in this world or ever feel like we've been justified or vengeance has been taken. That day, probably this side of heaven will never come. But as I look at verse 21 and following, I ask myself, how would John have felt? And look at verse 21. When the opportune time came on Herod's birthday, he gave this big banquet, invited everybody in. And uh, then the, he, he, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Probably, do you think the booze was flowing that night? <laughs> do you think uh, this dance was a nice uh, ballet 
Or do you think this was some kind of sensual time to arouse? So here's the king in a drunken stupor. Here he's been sexually enticed by this, this stepdaughter of his, okay? And this was all been planned by Herodias. And he gets him in this mood and he says, I am so happy and you've pleased my guests so much, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, he probably doesn't mean, I'll give you half my kingdom, but probably that was a saying in those days that, hey, anything you want that's within my power, I'm going to do it for you. So what would you like to have? And she goes and consults with her mother because this is a plan. It's a golden opportunity. And she comes back and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, imagine you're John the Baptist. You're down in your dungeon. And all of a sudden tonight, there's more noise upstairs than normal. There's revelry, there's rioty, there's some loud music. Maybe he heard the footprints, the footsteps of the dancing. We don't know. But as he hears all this, all of a sudden, there's a silence. After the silence, he hears footsteps coming down the stairs. And the executioner takes him out, and he's losing his head. Did he ever understand did he ever know the full story? What does he do when people are trying to hurt him and he has, his hands are totally tied behind his back? In a moment like that, the only thing you can do is to trust. Earlier in John's ministry, while he was in prison, remember he sent messengers to Jesus? And what do they ask? Are you the Messiah? Are you the sent one from God? Now, even John, probably in jail, was sort of, what's happening? <laughs> you know, God has called me to do all this. But in his moment of doubt, where did he go? The text tells us he sent his messengers to Jesus. And my friends, whenever we have questions, whenever people do stuff we don't understand, whenever the hurt comes that is just unexplainable, we may not find the answer this side of heaven, but we can always say, I will trust the God of heaven to do what only he can do. You know, I look at life and I say, Some things we, sometimes we can understand it. And sometimes if we wait long enough on earth, we see God take vengeance or we see God make it happen. I was reading in my Bible study this week, Ezra chapter 6. And there they're rebuilding the temple of God, the Jewish people are. The governor says, what are you folks doing? You can't do this. I'm going to write King Darius. And tell him what you're doing. And he's, King Darius, he's, this wicked and rebellious people, they're rebuilding this temple. It's going to hurt you and they're going to quit paying taxes to you. But the Jewish people said that, that there's some letter that's been written by your previous king, Cyrus. And maybe it is, but I don't know. But they're bad people. And Darius, he, he has the kingdom search. He finds the letter that Cyrus sent. And he writes a letter back to this governor who's trying to stick it to the Jewish people. And he says this. He says, number one, we have found it. Yes, it is true. He says, I don't want you hindering these people as they rebuild. Don't you do anything to stop them. Secondly, he said, I want you to take the taxes and pay all their expenses for the building of the temple. Thirdly, I want you to provide all the bulls and the lambs and the sheep, all the animals they need for sacrifices. And fourthly, if anybody gets in the way and harasses these people, I want you to turn their house into a pile of rubble and take one of the sticks out of the building process and impale them and leave them there. This is King Darius. <laughs> 
And here the Jewish people kept working and God flipped the hostility from them to those who are opposing them. Isn't that great? I mean, they lived long enough to see God take vengeance and get it to those people. Just like Joseph of old, you know, Genesis chapter 50. What you meant for evil, God has meant for the good. And here I am, the second most powerful man in all of, of Egypt, the most powerful kingdom in the world. Sometimes we live long enough to see that. But negatively, sometimes we don't. Like John the Baptist. It wasn't until he got to heaven. It wasn't until he got to heaven. Jesus never received his glory until he got to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of, of the Father. And, the, and we're told that he received his name upon, that, that Jesus, who, who gave his life, that, that he would be honored in such a way that every knee will bow, every tongue one day will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, the issue for us in these situations is do I compare myself to other people and say they don't have these problems, this doesn't happen to them, or their response is my standard, or do I equate myself to the person of Christ and what he has done for me? You know, as I look at that text, you understand that men like the Apostle Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, I have kept the faith. And he said this just before he was beheaded. He said, now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. And not only to me, but also unto all of those who long for his appearing. Revelation 21 says that when Christ returns for the second coming at the end of the tribulation, that he will be followed by the armies of heaven, the angelic host, by the saints of the ages, and the saints will be adorned in linen, And the linen reflects, the text says, the righteous acts of the saints. Because God has honored them for trusting him. You know, my parents spent three years working in a mission organization. And they traveled the mission fields counseling the missionaries and being a pastor of missionaries. And one of the stories that really has grabbed me is they went to Congo where the rebellion occurred back in the 50s. About 20 or 25 missionaries were held up in a house as as hostages. And the day of execution came, and they took all these missionaries, and they walked them down to the river. And the woman that told them this story was the woman that was called out and sent back, the only person who was called out and sent back to the house. The rest of the missionaries were told to stand up along the river bank. They were all shot dead, and their bodies thrown into the river for the crocodiles to consume My friends, there's no other option than to trust God. There's no other option. You wouldn't want to do what these people did to you. The only option they have is, number one, is to be righteous as Christ is righteous. Number two is to realize I am serving God and I am light and this is a dark world and this stuff is going to happen. Understand the main issue. But then lastly, when you see no answer, realize that there is a God in heaven and you trust him to give you the answer. Now let me ask you a question. Have you been thinking as we've been going through the life of John the Baptist, uh, you know, anything about a person in your life? Hmm? Have you been thinking about somebody who's been hurting you or maybe somebody who has hurt you in the past? Have you thought about that? 
My friends, it does happen. And I don't think there's a day that goes by where probably someone doesn't meet your expectations. Or someone doesn't ignore you. Or give you a cold shoulder. Or talk about you behind your back. Or not respond in the way you want. Or maybe even go the extra level of hurting you. What's the only solution to that? Well, if you respond as they respond, you only perpetuate the problem. But if you respond in such a way that you are confused with the way Christ would have responded, then maybe by God's grace, it could bring healing to the situation. What a compliment to John that when Jesus comes along, the king himself thinks he must be Jesus Christ. I remember one of my last memories of my father was uh, when we were up fishing in Ontario. And there's a little country store, the only grocery store in that area, and everybody goes there. And it was a rainy day, and, there's, and the parking lot was just dirt. And there's some mud puddles there. And as we were getting out of our car, we parked so we wouldn't be in a mud puddle. Then another car comes in to park beside us. And my dad, instead of rushing out of the rain into the store, he sort of goes up and sort of helps these people guide their car away from the mud puddle. And it's, these people get out of their car, and this elderly gentleman jumps out of the car and turns to my dad and says, Sir, are you a Christian? <laughs> and I thought to myself, all he did was get a little wet to help this person park his car. My friends, you are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. What could we do? How could we respond to the people in our world that is so distinctive that they even confuse us with Christ himself? Let's pray. In these quiet moments right now, I want you to think about maybe a situation or a person that's in your life right now. And you can see probably that your responses have not worked. Because possibly those responses have not been as righteous as they have should have been. Ask God to guide you and to lead you into responses that would be honorable. That would so capture their imagination that they might even see Christ in the process. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of John, even in his death. Lord, teach us to be so imitators of Christ in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we walk through our, our week, as we go to school, as we work, as we relate to people that we know, that, Father, they would see in us a faith that is so startling and so refreshing that they even sense the presence of God. Oh God, only you can do that through us. And we pray your grace upon us. In Christ's name, amen.